Hello there, I'm Mark Griffiths from Wrexham AFC and it's time for the Ask Wrexham podcast. Now firstly, apologise to you all. I have not done one for the last couple of weeks. It's because I've been trying to protect my throat, which has gone a bit ropey. But I think I'm all right today to go for it. So let's see how it goes. So remember, the Ask Wrexham podcast, we will answer your questions about Wrexham Football Club. No matter what type of question they are, we get them all the time on match day. They are wonderful. But... uh, there's not enough time to answer them all and frankly we don't get to see them all so it's brilliant to do this just to try and answer a few more and draw attention to some of the very best ones um i've got a little bit of a backlog because of not doing it for the last couple of weeks so i'm not going to address all the ones that are brought up that i've said i will address we'll carry some over to next week as well so here we are first one up it's from Mr. Griffiths. What a fine name. Who is the most recent Wrexham player to play for Wales first team? I was quite interested looking into this because I had an idea, but there were some interesting, very near misses. So let's have a look through them. Firstly, Mark Harris was on loan from Cardiff. This was three seasons ago. Started sensationally, faded away quite badly. And when we had to change a manager, the new manager eventually sent him back to Cardiff. He is a current Welsh international. And so the start of the next season, he got his first call up to the national team. So he was close and he's the most recent person to nearly be in it. Um, Up on my shelf, if you're watching the video behind, there is Mark Harris's boot from where he plays at Notts County. And he split his boot open and it was going to be thrown away. And so I decided that I would take it and give it its rightful place on the altar of the cult of Ask Wrexham. Neil Taylor is another obvious person to think about. Uh, Taylor played for us at the end of our football league times, and then the start of our non-league times, and was a superb homegrown player, and a top bloke to boot as well. And then he went on to have a magnificent international career for Wales, of course, playing in the semi-finals of the European Championships, major role in that team, scored against Russia in the group stages to help put us through. Uh, Neil left us in the summer of, I think I'm going to be right in saying this, 2009. His contract expired on the 30th of June, and at that point he went to Swansea, and soon afterwards he was called up to the Welsh squad. So once again, a player who was clearly on Wales' radar, but didn't actually get called up while playing for Wrexham. Danny Ward's another Neil Miss, of course, the goalkeeper who played so well in the European Championships and also played in the recent World Cup. Uh, had one appearance for Wrexham before he was poached by Liverpool. Because, well, I don't mean poached in the pejorative sense, because he was such a promising, talented goalkeeper. Um, but again, didn't get the call up while at Wrexham. Another near miss, and this is a, a very near miss, in Wrexham's first season down in the non-league, Dean Saunders, who had connections with the Welsh coaching setup pulled off what appeared to be a heck of a coup when he brought in Andrew Crofts who was a, a current Welsh international and it was like, wow he's dropped down to non-league he wasn't having a happy time at Gillingham and clearly Saunders used his connections to to bring him in he signed him and played him on his debut on the same day in a massive match at Burton we still had an outside chance of winning the league Burton were the league leaders we really had to go there and get a win really and we scored first but lost 2-1 Crofts was bringing him straight in on the day he'd signed without training with us a good idea I don't know I'm certainly not pointing the finger at him because we didn't win. Plenty of teams lost at Burton that season. Um, He didn't quite, in quite a long loan spell, he didn't quite 
sort of um, hit the standards you'd expect, if I'm perfectly honest. He didn't look, you know, you look at our players now and you're thinking, yeah, these guys came from League One, they look like League One. He didn't really, I don't know why. And indeed, Gillingham released him after he went back to them. But he was named on the bench for a Welsh international while he was at Wrexham. So, strictly speaking, he's the most recent player to get into a squad, but he didn't actually play while he was a Wrexham player. So let's dive deeper again. Joe Allen, of course, was on loan at the start of that same season, and I've heard this a million times, he was he was clearly heads and shoulders above everybody else, and if he'd stayed fit, I do wonder whether he'd have been uh, you know, a key player in us going straight back up again, because he was brilliant, but he lasted one and a half games, sadly, before he picked up a season-ending injury. That was a real blow, and he was in the Welsh squad the season after he was with us, so he's a sort of near-miss. Um, now... How about this for an incredibly near miss? Craig Morgan came through our youth system. Excellent, big, strong centre-back who had good feet as well, could pass well. Holds the record for the youngest ever scorer for Wrexham. Scored an injury-time equaliser at Cambridge. And he moved on, but then was loaned back to us. Played two games for us. And after he finished his loan spell... Even though he was not getting into his parent team's club, uh, team, he was called up for Wales. So the week after he went back. So that's another very near miss. And Morgan did go on to have other caps as well. So actual Wrexham players who were Wrexham players at the time getting on the pitch to play for Wales. Okay. Well, we were spoiled. We beat Liechtenstein. 4-0 at the race course, and there were three Wrexham players playing in that game. So, Steve Evans, the first one, he started the match. A massive, strong centre-back. He was with us in the Football League and then came down briefly, injured on league as well. Uh, genuinely good player who was in the Welsh team, certainly on merit. And so he was darting, and then we had two subs come on as well. Local hero Mark Jones, who we've interviewed on Dragonheart, was an incredibly gifted midfielder. And then also... Up front, Chris Llewellyn came on. If you're watching the video, this iconic picture of him the season before we went down when we had what seemed to be an absolutely massive game to avoid relegation against Boston, which we won, and thus avoided relegation. Llewellyn famously scored one of the goals, then ran off celebrating with his shirt off, swinging it over his head, threw it into the crowd, and didn't get it back. And we obviously had to resume the game, and so remarkably... A fan gave him his shirt that he'd come to the game in, which didn't properly fit him. It was a bit too tight and which was of a previous season, just so he could wear a shirt and finish the match. Crazy stuff. So they are our most recent Wrexham players who, while on our books, actually turned out four whales. Right, OK, now. Scott Johnson. Um, talked about uh, being in an imaginary band. Oh, no, beg your pardon, that was a different one. Scott Johnston was saying a question uh, for a longer-form Ask Wrexham pod. What's Notts County's salary budget, and is it significantly less than Wrexham's? Uh, is there success due to their owners using the player data analysis like Billy Bean brought to baseball in the 1990s? Thank you. Well, thank you, Scott, because that's a wonderful question, and I'm going to have to answer some bits better than others, I think, to be honest with you. Firstly, the budget. Right, I, I can't tell you what their budget is because I don't know. And I, I'm, I may be wrong, and I'd be really interested for people to tell me this. I get the impression that maybe in 
North American sports, you often have to have an actual set budget and declare it. Um, you do in Spanish football as well. You don't in Britain, although you can, and Wrexham have fallen foul of this in the bad days, be told that you've got to have evidence that you can financially get through the season or they could kick you out before the season even starts. Anyway, that's a different story. So I, I can't tell you what their budget is. I could, I, what I can tell you is that they've got a substantial budget because they keep bringing in players, but that, you know, it, it surely is not as big as ours because we have got a really substantial budget. We keep bringing in players from higher divisions. Um, but So they'll have a substantial budget. I would also say, let's be cautious here because, I mean, Kieran Maguire, who's an excellent podcaster on football finance, I put out a, quote, a tweet a couple of months ago talking about how Notts County were quite a number of million pounds in debt and some people were panicking about that. I mean, let's be honest, in any business like football, your debt's only a problem if you're not going to be able to repay it. I know that sounds simplistic, but you know, all signs seem to be that Notts County's owners are in it for the long run and are seriously in it to help their club. So, you know, this money that they owe... A lot of it's money that the owners have given to the club. If the owners don't want it back, it's just not a problem. And if the owners are happy to spend more and more, as ours are, then you could, your budget grows when you feel like it. And the manager turns around and says, I need this player. And so, is there going to be money on the table for him? If so, you know, your budget's just grown, hasn't it? So I don't know, but it will be big, but not as big as ours. I really want to pick up on that second part, the Billy Bean part as well, because Moneyball is a phrase that since the 90s has been bandied around a lot, often quite lazily in British football. Moneyball was a massive concept over here. It grabbed people's attention. The problem is that there, was, there wasn't the same type of data in football that you get in baseball. I mean, obviously, if we look at it, I mean, baseball is a sport based on numbers, isn't it? It, it can be broken down to a, a series of individual contests between the pitcher and the batter, and each outcome can be quantified numerically in terms of exactly where the ball went or didn't go. Um, and, and you can measure the speed of the ball, you can measure the batter's intention, you, you can measure that all those things are finite and clear and, and can be determined. Football's not like that, is it? Football's random. The moment the ball kicks off, everything is completely different, whereas each pitch in baseball has got a, a, a set of confining parameters. Football doesn't. Every Once you've done that, you've got 22 random factors plus a ball that can go anywhere and, and it becomes difficult to measure. So the problem at first was that people loved the idea of money ball in football and tried to find ways to apply it and did it in silly ways. Um, it, what, the data wasn't there now you, you will see now obviously there's a lot of data floating around in football and in many ways it's the biggest currency amongst clubs the companies that provide data are really now big orb operations and it's expensive to get that data my point is that clubs will get their own data and it will have its strengths and limitations. Clubs will not share that data with other clubs because it's, like I said, valuable currency. So we don't really know to what extent Notts County are using this sort of uh, moneyball concept, if you will. What we do know 
is that they're probably are limited in how well they can apply it. So it isn't the case of Billy Bean, you know, doing things like going out and saying, ignore how how beautiful that guy's swing is. You know, the, the traditional scouts are saying he's a natural hitter. Look at that look at him, he's beautiful to watch. And Billy Bean saying, No, but the numbers don't stack up. This guy who has a scruffy style and scrabbles around and never pays anyone's get anyone's attention, he's always getting onto first base. He's actually much more effective. He's just not as attractive. Uh, that sort of stuff doesn't really extrapolate in quite the same way in football uh, at our level. At much higher levels, you will see clubs uh, who will really look to fit lots of different attributes in to looking at the types of player they want. And there's no question that Wrexham, leaning on the expertise of Les Reed, did that before Phil Parkinson arrived in deciding our retained list, which players to keep, which players not to keep, because there was a clear concept in the club's mind of how they wanted the team to play and how we would recruit players in that style, find a manager who wanted that style, Phil Parkinson, as it turned out, and also would not keep players who didn't suit that style. So, I hope I'm making sense here. Um, Notts County may well use data to make more intelligent decisions on signings. I'm quite sure they do, but they won't be able to do it to the extent of, you know, the, uh, Oakland doing it. They, they, they can't do it in that depth, I would argue, because no club at our level would be able to. You get access to all other matches in the National League, 90 minutes as a club, but how much staff have you got? I mean, we are um, obviously investing a lot in infrastructure, but as far as I'm aware, we have one person actually analysing matches for the coaches. So, you know, how, how far Notts County could go in that level of analysis is difficult to tell because beyond very basic stats like how many goals you scored, how many assists you made, and even that, look at, look at any website that covers the National League. Look at the BBC's stats bit. It'll give us the top scorers and it tells you um, because it's the template of their web page, how many assists they've made and also how many goals per minute. And those are always completely wrong because the fact of the matter is they, they don't have those statistics to hand. So clubs will make their own bespoke analysis and collect their own data, but it will be limited by the amount of staff they've got. Um, and at our level, as far as I'm aware, there's no real proper analysis getting done at the granular level that you get higher up. So I, I suspect that they seem very well run, Notts County. And I, yes, absolutely. I'm sure there's a level of use of data because I think all serious clubs use data now. Well, he was shocked as I was to hear Dean Saunders going on about, oh, these people, they, they sound like they've swallowed a laptop. Oh, people should simplify it. That makes me feel edgy that he had like four years at our club <laughs> operating on that basis. It's very old-fashioned. But anyway, sorry. Um, but yeah, I, I, I doubt very much that they've got the sort of sophisticated tools you'd need to really do that that deep dive into stats. And I would also argue Wrexham are doing as much as you could have possibly imagined at our level. So it's hard to imagine they're doing it more than us. The players we're bringing in clearly are fitting into a certain type and clearly we've done our due diligence on them. Right then. Tim says that apart from that's the base playing one, but also talks about um we talked about Linton and Howard previously. Where else do we see uh, there being battles in the roster in the squad when we've got full fitness? Well, a few weeks ago I did put a thing out on Twitter, and I've decided to show you the messier one. So there are three versions of this. So troll back if you've got the patience on my timeline, you'll find it. Look at the media section; that'll be quicker. 
um, the idea of this was strength and depth. And I did one which was just each player appears once. This is the messier, but in a way more realistic one. Trying to say all the positions that players could possibly play in. Now, having said that, clearly I made this before we signed a Barnet. But looking at it, right. Depth of centre depth or keepers, obviously we've got two first choice keepers really, haven't we? Centre backs, I mean we've been we've been pushed to the limit lately, but at a pinch those centre backs could switch around to other parts and have done. So we have quite a good amount of cover at centre back, haven't we? We look at it, O'Connell, Toza, Hayden, Antonicliffe, and Clueth. That's five who are absolutely you know, when they're fit, absolutely ready to go. And and certainly the quality three first choice, and then Lennon as well, is very good if he's able to maintain his fitness and get his sharpness. And then O'Connor can do a good job filling in. Although I wouldn't really want him to, we'd like him in midfield. So I would say there's a lot of competition there. I think O'Connor was brought in because we had those injuries to Tony Cliff and Hayden. I think he may well have come in at some future point. I suspect, but we brought him in then. Um, but. Yeah, so there's certainly a lot of strength and depth there. Now, wing-backs is a weird one, isn't it? You look at the right wing-backs we've got. We've got a lot of good right wing-backs. That's, that's discard Hayden, and well, Hayden, at least, uh, because we would not really want him to play wing-back. He has played a chunk of his career out as a wing-back, though. I mean, Ford is high quality, and he is, at the moment, sort of winning the battle, isn't he? Hall Johnson and Hosanna, though, to be fair, neither have had continuity because of injuries. McAlinden has been uh, a stand-in and has done all right. But I don't think we'd want him to be there on the long term because his strengths are more playing further at the pitch. So maybe there's scope for improvement there, but you would have to essentially be thinking that all Johnson knows as injuries are, are serious, wouldn't you, really? On the left-hand side, my word, what a lot of choice we got there. So there's definitely competition between Mendy and McFadden, no question. And then there's so many other options. O'Connor would be a, a bit of a desperate sh shot if we had lots of injuries. Davis, he'd rather play in midfield, but he has played at left wing back extensively, including for Brighton and the 21s. Hosanna is right-sided, but he looks equally good on the left. So we've got a lot of depth there. And McAlinden as well can also do the same job. Centre-mid, is centre-mid a bit thin I mean I've put O'Connor and Clueth into that defensive midfield role and you know I'm being a little misleading there aren't I because Young could play there as well I'm, I'm rather suspect James Jones who actually since I made this has filled in for 10 minutes very well at right wing back I'm sure he could fill in the centre and we've also seen Cannon playing in the central role Davis could as well frankly so we've got quite a lot of options there O'Connor and Clueth though are the only ones who you would describe as being defensive midfielders. Clueth hasn't played them all that much for the first team, but he has played for the first team there and done a good job, um, but not very much. O'Connor is a natural in that sort of role. And then the going forwards positions look very competitive, don't they, when you consider the breadth of players. You know, Lee Davis, Cannon, Young, Jones, McAlinden, all these players, can, and O'Connor as well, quite frankly, can play doing those roles. So there's a lot to consider there. So up front... Again, competition, which we've seen recently, haven't we? And the Dolby has superseded Palmer. Um, so we've got Mullen, Palmer, Dolby as the obvious options. Bickerstaff, who is a very promising young striker. Is he ready for this challenge? Yeah, I think we could use him in the league, certainly. 
Uh, McAlinden and Lee could play up front, but I, again, for the reason I said before, we'd rather have them in different parts of the pitch. So there's definitely a scrap there between Palmer and Dolby. Um, you could argue we should have a fourth experienced striker, but at the moment, those three are doing beautifully, and I don't think there's any urgency about that because, quite frankly, we don't need to worry about transfer windows. But by the start of next season, it'll be interesting to see if it's decided that Bickerstaff is number four or whether we need to bring in somebody who's... Well, I mean, there's the problem, isn't it? Willing to play back up to Mullen? Well, you know, he's probably going to be waiting a long time to get a chance then, aren't you, unless he gets injured. And even then, partner Dolby, we've seen, has got potential as a partnership. So loads of competition. That's the beautiful part, isn't it? Um, you can see areas you might want to bring another player in for, to add to the competition, but not many. That's a good situation to be in. Now then, Motel's on Mars. Dear Supreme Leader, quite right, your reaction to Dolby's goal against Aldershot reminded me of the... Um, oh, my eyesight's terrible. My favourite bit from the documentary, Mark's Decibel Meter. Ah, good times. What was your reaction when you first saw it? And what do you think of your newfound fame and cult leader status? Well, <laughs> right, when I first saw it, I, I, I'd, I didn't get to see that episode when it was released. And in work that day, I knew that they'd made something of the Dover game. And I knew it was that night, that, that, that day it came out. And at work, there were some kids who were making reference to, uh, oh, don't get too loud, sir. And I thought, hey, hey. It's like, yep, okay, I need to see this. So I went home and I watched it. Oh, it's just funny, isn't it? I love the way they set it like it's Rob Ryan and I commentating. That's, that's madness, that was. I'm just a poor boy from Hartown, Wrexham. I don't get Rob and Ryan commentating with me. Oh, it was, so it was fantastic. I really loved it so much. I've got to say, my I also have to say that there's something particular about that sixth goal that I want to mention. I went nuts. Guilty as charged. After the game, I sent the commentary clip to the media team at the club just to say, you know, is this any use? And it was used and it went viral. But the, the, the ironically, the bit I actually thought really made the clip work wasn't used because Andy Parkinson, who was my best mate and I've been with, commentated with him for a long, long time, was with me. And after I scream and scream and scream and scream and scream, and I don't really articulate that there's been a goal, I just go nuts. Once all that dies down, he's got a very dry style, very dry sense of humour, and he just very calmly says, in case you haven't guessed, Wrexham have scored. And that was the bit that I thought was brilliant, that you got this insanity of all this screaming. I've got to say, a lot of the yelping is him, actually, as well. It's not just me. Uh, if you listen, you can hear those two voices. But then once it finishes, just that sudden pause and then the delivery of that very dry punchline, I thought that was epic. And it wasn't actually in the clip that initially went viral on the day of the match. Um, and I was delighted when the documentary did put his line in because that's just to me. You listen back to it. It's just a topper. I thought it was funny that I was screaming and I can see why that sort of thing goes viral. The internet likes people screaming and falling over, obviously. But his his line at the end is sweet it's beautiful um, <laughs> what do I think of my newfound fame I'm not famous I'm just a guy who's uh, loving the fact that his ego's being massaged because I'm doing what I've been doing all along and now people are encouraging me to do it <laughs> 
I'm no different to how I used to do it, but I just love the fact that all of a sudden people are saying, oh, carry on doing it that way. Yeah, yeah. That's just wonderful. That's that's the coolest part for me, if I'm perfectly honest, you know. Um, so that that's, that is great. Uh, you know, when, in the old days of Wrexham Player, we didn't get the figures and we estimated there might be about 200 people listening on a good day. So it's it's very exciting to now have us pushing it further, a lot further. It is brilliant. And as for the cult, well, it's only a matter of time, really, I think, that I would become a, a cult leader. I've got all the qualities of a cult leader, a massively out of control ego, um, arrogance, um, willingness to put myself ahead of others, you know, that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it was just a matter of time. And as I've gained weight, a lot of my clothes now are starting to look like sort of the sort of ceremonial gowns the cult leaders wear when things really go to the, the final out-of-control stage. So, yeah, I, I think I'm... I, I, It's the role I was born to play, I would argue. Now then, Berserker says, uh, for those new fans of the team... What's changed with the shape and formation and tactics since Phil Parkson came in as manager uh, compared to before? And how might the team start to change now how they're built hope, as we hopefully work, move up the leagues? So, time to get the tactics board out. So if we look at how the team has changed well the previous manager Dean Keats also used a three at the back system for his last season and you know in, in some ways it was similar but the difference is being if you look at this midfield configuration here he would play a bit more of a sort of double pivot so you've got Jay Harris who's a very combative player gets tackles in uh, but also could had a range of passing and Luke Young Obviously, Young was expected to get up and down as well, and Harris could too. It was similar to our midfield three, except Jordan Davis was being used more behind the strikers. So he'd be able to get up, get into the channels, and he obviously is good at shooting from around the edge of the area. And then the converse side of that would be our wing-backs certainly were aggressive, progressive players, record giving us wits down the left, Paul Johnson giving us width down the right and often they would take advantage of the three at the back system in order to both be in the attack at the same time. That's the benefit of having three at the back. You can release both you know, wing backs. Um, but I would say they're not quite as important. Well, they were very important to our attacking style of play, but Ford or whoever's on the left and right and McFadden or whoever's on the left, they really do start off, and especially on the left side, we'll start them from much higher positions. You know, Mendy we sometimes see actually starting an attack at a level with the strikers. So we, in our style, tend to get our wing-backs forward earlier. Not always. We like seeing Ford and McFadden and Mendy uh, linking up with play, don't we? from deeper positions the other main difference so, so do you see what I mean that by releasing the third attacking player you may be asking your two wide players to be a little bit more conservative not massively but a little bit um, the, the other big difference I would say in the, in the style of play um, was that we are, of course, with Parkinson inviting our wide centre-backs to come up, especially Aidan or Clueth when he's playing, and join in play and get forwards. And if we imagine that Tunnicliffe is Clueth for a bit, 
you know, it's been quite common, isn't it, when he and McFadden particularly are together because they have a very good relationship in terms of passing to try and create overloads on the left-hand side, which is very, very progressive, isn't it? We didn't look to do the same with these central defenders. You know, Vassell's uh, probably the best one at coming forwards and was quick, and he would occasionally drive forwards, but it wouldn't tend to be so regular. Um, Kelleher wasn't really that sort of centre-back, in all honesty. I mean, the other thing you've got to say, and, and I'm, I'm very reluctant, I liked this Keats team, and it was very unlucky not to get in the playoffs. Um, but I think the other thing you could say about it was, I mean, obviously, we had an upgrade in quality. I mean, if you look at the names of the, the Keats team in green, you know, there's only, a, what, Davis and Young and Hall Johnson left now, uh, still at the club. And part of that is because players like Harris and also players who aren't actually on this screen, but who played quite a bit, like Mark Harrington and Paul Rutherford, has probably come to the point where, you know, they, they were, you know, getting older and, and maybe it was the right time to move on. Um, but obviously we have moved a lot of these players on as well. And we've brought in a League One quality side. Um, I, I should also point out, I suppose, I mean, I'm putting O'Connor in that slightly more holding role. Um, it's more that we've got a flat midfield three, really, haven't we? With the, maybe the central guy a little bit deeper, but they can join in more. It's just that O'Connor tends to be, when he's playing, because of his natural style, more of a sitting in and spreading the ball around type of player. Um, so I would say that's the basic uh, comparison, if you will, between the two styles of play. But to be honest, the, the main difference is that we were able to import really high quality league one style players and that's the that's the real breaking point in terms of how those two teams are different rather than any particular stylistic thing so i hope that made sense i, I do apologize for those of you who only listen to the audio but i think this is the best way for me to explain with the tactics board uh, so i am sorry Tofa picked up on berserker's point and said parky kept the same form basic formation which he did but he added a diamond twist when wanting to go more offensive at a 4-4-2 diamond. And so he says, as we move up, we're likely to go away from the five-man defence and move towards a four-man defence. So let's get back to the tactics board. Sorry, audio listeners. Just to pick up on Topher's point as well about the midfield diamond, and he's absolutely right. It's when Wrexham want to attack more. And, and let's make one thing very clear. It's a very attacking formation using a specific time. There were points earlier in the season, I'm glad to say people don't seem to be saying this now as far as I can see, where people were arguing if we do so well with the diamond, why don't we start like that? Well, the reason we've done well with the diamond is because we've used it when we're not doing well. Or, should I say, because to be fair to Parkinson, he's a bold manager in the way he's approaching this season, and when we want to win and we haven't got it. So he has done this. You know, This is the sort of um, plan B that managers use usually when they're losing and are desperate to pull themselves back into a game. He uses it when we're drawing because he realises that in a sort of title race we are in Minots County, he needs wins. And so sometimes we've been drawing and he'll still change it around. And so basically what he'll do, there's our sort of basic formation that we play with three at the back, the wing backs. And so if we need 
something more. He'll bring off a centre-back that will almost always be the left-sided one, not because he's against left-sided centre-backs, but because, think about it, we're looking for goals. So we want Tozer to stay on with his long throw. And we also want Hayden to stay on to get on the end of long throws or, set, or corners. Tozer, of course, can get on the end of corners. We are forfeiting a third big bloke who can attack corners, but it's because we're going to try to create more in open play. Now, because you're playing four at the back, your wing-backs become, strictly speaking, full-backs. But let's remember, these are just labels, aren't they? So... We do, when we play, to still tend to commit the full-backs forwards, but maybe only one at a time rather than two. Depends how desperate we are, to be fair. Okay, so having brought a player off, what he does is instead brings off the centre-back and brings on an attacking player. So now we've got the midfield diamonds. I'll just switch that, because generally what he does is Mullin, who's more suited to being a sort of second striker, if you will, because he's quick, because he likes running the channels, as, and also because he's quite happy to go out wide and deliver, so he's much more the player to put there. But obviously, when we're coming forwards, he's going to get himself into the box as well and try and get on the end of something. So there's your midfield diamond right there. So it's you've got your midfield diamond going across O'Connor to Lee Mullen Young, and there's your, that's why it's called a diamond. Now, having said that, the... Um, Oopsie doopsie, didn't know I could do that. Uh, when you do, when we're playing like this, as I said, Mullen is an attacking player. Lee will also try to get forwards because diamonds can be used to be quite defensive. If you look at, if you imagine for a second, it's not these players. You can really clog up the middle of the pitch by doing that, and then force your opponents to come wide around the outside. But the thing is that if you do that, then yeah, you could just you can that's that's a sort of negative iteration of it, isn't it? We though don't. We tend to push up. Uh it's an attacking formation. Young will try to drive up and down and get support. Lee will try to get up and down. That midfield anchor man who like I said in a more defensive setup would sit in front of the centre backs is much more likely to be sort of pushing up to join midfields and try and create an overload there and release the forward player in the diamond a bit more. And it is an extreme attacking approach that we have. Um, you can't start a game like that because, I mean, look at the personnel on the pitch. We've got four super attacking players there, haven't we? In the two strikers, Mullin and Lee. We are really taking risks if we're asking them all to be doing defensive jobs. I, I wouldn't start her off like that. I certainly wouldn't. The thing I don't necessarily agree with Tofer with is the idea that as we go up the divisions, we'll change to a four at the back. I, I don't think that's necessarily so. Um, I think he'll alter things based on how he thinks his plans are going, how he thinks his formation's working. I mean, at the moment, I'd say this three at the back is a very well-grooved style. The players are very used to it. And you can see how small alterations in personnel can make interesting variations upon it. So he may decide to go for it at the back. He, he may decide to stick to this. Uh, it's unlikely, I think, that's, that there's a set formula, if you will. And sometimes when something is fashionable across the board, it's, it's a good idea to go against it and stick to your guns and exploit the gaps in the other side's formation. So it'll be interesting to see exactly what he does but 
I think going forwards, I don't think it's guaranteed he'll switch away from this. I think it depends on what personnel he wants to, to bring in and how he wants to use them. Right, so I hope that was useful. Jamie Lightning says, This whole hatchet conversation is fascinating. This is, remember I said I've gone back a bit. I'll go back even further for the next question. It's about Mullin claiming a hat-trick, remember? Um, details of the specific goal aside, isn't there someone officially in charge of determining what player is awarded a goal? And isn't it the ref? Right, now then. I've actually seen, since confidently declaring on this, I've seen some interesting contradictory stuff, so I'll go through it all. Right, it's definitely the ref's call. The referee's job is to, you know, report the correct score, uh, but not to adjudicate on who scored the goal. So that's an interesting point. Firstly, no, it isn't the referee's decision. Now, you see, at the higher levels, you'll have TV picking everything apart and very quickly coming to a conclusion. And the general conclusion was the shot going in. If it was going in and took a deflection, probably the player's going to keep the goal. And, and, and that's how I think it should be as well. Sometimes you see him being very picky and the shot's on target. Oh, but the keeper wouldn't have, would have saved that. Well, you know, don't make, if you, don't make suppositions. If it's on target, take a deflection, give it to the bloke who hit it. Um, the, if it's off target, it's an own goal. And I think that's fair enough. When you get down to our levels, you rarely get much scrutiny. And this is why I thought Mullen would be credited with the hat-trick. Because when you look at the replays, there's one angle that clearly shows that when he back heels, that ball's going miles wide and hits the defender and goes in. However, normally, at our level, there won't be lots of scrutiny. And whatever is said at the time on the press bench will go. Sometimes there will be discussion on the press bench about who's scored the goal. But ultimately, and this is where it gets weird, right, the data is not to be trusted on our level. So when you look at different stats and appearance stats, don't trust them. They're all coming from a company called PA Data, which gives does the stats across all the professional British games. I'm not saying they're not trustworthy, but their methods are not reliable at our level. Because by the fifth tier, they basically demand that somebody from the club collates the stats during the match. So when you see the data on BBC website, Sky Sports website, on Flash Score, and all these different apps and websites, they're all coming from somebody in the press box from the home team who is sending texts to PA data telling them things that have happened. Okay, Which essentially means that normally that person has the power to grant goals. And if they get it wrong, it might stick. You know, they do get corrected, but you know, generally only because the clubs pursued it and said, you've got the wrong person there. Now, my assumption at the time was the person in the press box had, was going to say Mullen and he'd get the goal. And the fact that it wasn't credited means he must have seen it was an own goal and given it to Corey Jordan. I have been told since that the person in the box definitely sent Mullen's name and said it was a hat-trick, and yet instantaneously it was down as an own goal. So is this, this I assume, is because of the extra scrutiny on us, because uh, of streaming, and more importantly, because of Rob and Ryan, people actually look at our games and see what happens and make decisions on it. I, I'm bewildered as to who made that quick decision. I genuinely am. Um, if, the, if it was sent from Aldershot as Mullen's goal, 
who made that decision? I have said in previous podcasts that I, I, I can think of at least off the top of my head three examples of Wrexham players who've been credited with goals that they definitely didn't touch just because the person in the ground made a mistake. But I'm slightly bewildered by how the correct answer was given because the wrong answer was sent out from the ground. I am confused by that. Um, I know that Mullen's not happy and Mullen has been eager to get the club to challenge it. The problem is that, you know, I'm sure the club has challenged it on his behalf, but there's clear evidence that it isn't his goal. <laughs> As uh, Sean Harvey said after the, a game, a couple of game matches ago, I saw in the car park and he said, the trouble is there's a lot of replays of that. So, you know, we can see it's not Mullen's goal. Um, as for the idea of, of one body deciding, people talk about the dubious goals panel. Now, I was adamant that this doesn't exist. It's just lazy talk. According to Wikipedia, it does exist in the Football League. Okay, fair enough. If that's the case, definitely doesn't exist at our level. But like I said, there's something mysterious about how instantaneously an incorrect decision was automatically corrected. Who did that? That is strange. Um, I certainly, while commentating the correct version, that was an on-goal, came up on the screen. So somebody stepped in who must have been able to see the footage and say right correct that so Mullins unlucky not to get a hat-trick that he actually didn't score if that makes sense hmm. <laughs> maybe not now Darren's happy place I told you I'd go even further back remember Max Kretschmar getting sent off for Wheelstone at the race course oh my god it was funny now Darren's happy place got a really interesting thread here it says can you comment on the red card on Kretschmar from what I've seen, it seems appropriate, uh, but I have also heard it called controversial. I would welcome your totally unbiased thoughts. Darren, why are there speech marks around unbiased? You know I'm an honest man. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'm hurt, but I'm going to get over it. Um, now, I, I will go back to that initial question, because there's some important points in it, but I'll just say that the reactions are interesting, because Chicago's squeaky bum time says Kretz should also know a referee would never let him back on with the uh, back on with the ball mere feet away. An unfair situation to suddenly get involved from the sideline. So he's jumping the gun in more ways than one. And Darren replies, I think the argument that the call was controversial partly comes because referees rarely if ever give a yellow for this. Do you recall the last time you've given a yellow you've seen a yellow given for this? Right now then. Darren, let's go back to your initial point. I would argue strongly it's not controversial. Uh, it's just um, lazy journalism. You know, euphemistic journalism. People just don't want to... Oh, oh, that's slightly unusual, so we'll call it controversial. You know, whether that's laziness or whether it's just people wanting to get extra clickbait, um, I don't know. But it's not controversial. Because what Chicago Squeaky Bum Time said is, is 100% correct. And as you said, Darren, it seemed appropriate. Just to recap, the guy's on the yellow card. He's standing on the side of the pitch having had treatment. So if you have treatment and the player who caused the injury wasn't given a yellow card, you have to leave the pitch till the ref waves you back on. Coming on the pitch without permission is a yellow card offence. It is written in black and white in the laws of the game. So you can't do that. And if you look at the footage, you'll see that the referee is holding his hand up while players going on to say to Kretschmar, you can't come on the pitch. And the ball is right in front of him. So clearly the referee is 100% right. Generally, the referee will wait until the ball's a long, long way away before calling you down. 
Secondly, the fourth official's got his arm across him to say, you can't come on yet, because the fourth official's watching the ref, and, you know, he'll move his arm when the ref puts his arm down to say, or says, come on, come on. So the fourth official's blocking him. What on earth possessed Kretschmar to run onto the pitch at that point and try to get involved, which everyone knows is not allowed? I don't know. Maybe he thought that he wasn't going to get a yellow, but you know that's his problem, not the referee's problem. Yeah. Um, so for me, this is totally non-controversial. It's an act of remarkable stupidity. And, I mean, if you recall, in the first half of that game, there was a similar instance where a Wilson player went down, got treatment, and then we did be score. We scored, didn't we? He couldn't come on because the free kick was right in front of him. And the referee did exactly the same thing, standing with his arm right up to say, clearly, you can't come on, mate. So, <laughs> you know, it is an automatic yellow. And your last point, Darren, I would say... Okay, do I recall the last time I seen the yellow given for this? I can't off the top of my head say the exact incident, but I would honestly say that I, I, the, the idea that refs rarely give a yellow for this, not in my recollection, let's say the incidents don't really stand out, but in my recollection, yeah, refs always give a yellow for this. This is not a, this is something a professional footballer, if he doesn't know it, I mean, to say he hasn't been paying attention would be a massive understatement. This is a, this, if you step on the pitch without permission, it's yellow card. I, I would argue. I, I'm struggling to think of any time someone's got away with that. So it's really non-controversial. It was just astoundingly stupid, I mean, to be perfectly frank. Um, but uh, there was further conversation from this. Um, Darren's happily saying, from this perspective, I can kind of understand Kretschmar. If the refs arguably ambiguous, they maybe shouldn't have been given his yellow. And also something Parky said in the post-game was telling. He remarked that the ref likely gave out yellows too easily early on in the game and said it put him in a bad spot later. The result, as we saw, was that Kretschmar was sent off for the second yellow. Now, you see, i I got to be honest, I slightly disagree with Phil here, um, even though he does know a great deal more of football about football than I ever will. Um, I would say... The idea that the refs are arguably ambiguous, I don't think he is ambiguous. I think I think referees do give yellows consistently for that. And he did, with the previous guy, hold his arm up very clearly to say, no, you can't come on. And he did exactly the same thing at Kretschmar. So I, I would say he's unambiguous. He's clearly saying, you'll come on when I'm ready, mate. Um, and you, everyone knows you can't come on the pitch when the ball's near you anyway. I mean, the ref was never going to call him on in that situation. So it's a nonsense. It's in Kretschmar's defence is it doesn't exist. What Phil said about giving a yellow card early is a truism throughout football. A lot of football people say don't give early yellow cards because then you put yourself in a bad position. Now, lots of people say this. I just don't agree with this at all, I've got to say. I look at it this way. It's the player's responsibility to behave. If the player chooses to do something which needs to be punished. They should be punished. This idea, which I constantly rail against when I'm commentating, of, oh, it's, it's, it's the first 20 minutes, so we'll let him have that one. Why? Why are you allowed to kick somebody in the first 20 minutes and get away with it? In the old days, you used to call it a reducer. You're a defender marking a skillful player, so you try and hit him hard early on to sort of maybe injure him a bit or to make him scared of you. Well, why the hell should you be allowed to get away with that? Shouldn't ball players be given the right to play their game? You know, 
this concept as well that sometimes you hear of, oh, it's only a first offence, we'll let it go. Well, if the offence is bad enough for yellow card, it's yellow card. But the t there's nothing in the rules saying that at a certain time of the game, you should not give yellow cards for fouls that deserve them. So for me, a football's got this all wrong because within football, everyone says, oh, the ref's making a problem for himself. No, the players, I think, are making a problem for themselves. If they're going to make late challenges and get yellow cards early in the game and they're on an early warning, that is their problem. They made that happen. And this is a place where I'm firmly behind referees who are brave enough to give early yellow cards. It's not their job. People often say the ref had a good game, he didn't have to show any yellow cards. Well, if it was a dirty game, he should have shown yellow cards. That's my argument. The ref, I don't think, can take... People talk about the ref managing the game well. You can only manage it up to an extent, can't you? I would say yellow cards to show you won't tolerate violent play is a good way of managing a game because the players know where they stand. If I push my luck, if I'm if I'm dirty, I might get sent off here. I think that's good management. I, I don't I think the responsibility to avoid getting booked is the players, not the referees. And it's especially irksome when you see you know the idea you know, the idea of taking one for the team, you know, the team's in danger, so you'll foul somebody deliberately just to stop the danger and you know you'll get a yellow card and you accept it. And I, I gotta say I'm not saying that's wrong. If I was playing and I knew I'd get a yellow for something to stop an attack, I'd do it. <laughs> I want Wrexham players to do it. It's cynical, but I want to win. So I'm not saying that's the wrong thing to do. But when a referee lets you off because it's only 15 minutes in, I mean, how ludicrous is that? You, you, you commit a cynical foul deliberately, knowing you'll get a yellow, and don't even get one. It happens. What game was happening in a recent home game? We were breaking away and a player took Lee out. And it was only about 10 minutes into the game. We were in a shooting, you know, potential shooting position. We had more players going forwards and defenders were coming back. And the ref failed to give a yellow because it was early on. I mean, the player knew he was going to get yellow. He deliberately drew a yellow card simply to stop the attack. And then he even gets away with that. That's bad refing, I think. Also, the thing that you often see where a referee will be determined not to show yellow cards. It's in his head from the start, clearly. He'll let a few fouls go. He'll let more go. And before you know it, he's showing a red card. Because the game's got out of hand. Because the players are all thinking, this bloke's a soft touch. I can kick lumps out of people. And that's when you do get red cards. So these referees often make a problem for themselves, I think, by not showing early yellows. But I admit, I'm totally out of step. Most people in the game would say, don't show an early yellow, because then you might have to show another one. Well, that's not your problem. The fact that a bloke's on yellow cards, his problem, not yours, ref. Well, that was a fun rant, wasn't it? Let's move on to a happier place. Oh, no, we're still talking about it. And I must say, Chicago squeaky bum time is right to say the best refs in the world routinely get called poor. We are so biased. Football fans are deeply, deeply biased. I do agree that FIFA held off on VAR because moaning about the refs part of the culture and fun of the fan experience. <laughs> what would you all debate otherwise? I think that's true. And VAR was never, ever going to make that go away because it's run by humans. Ah, I better move on to something less controversial. J.D. Lightning. Own goals in the match today. I remember that. Remember that game? <laughs> yeah. What's the most you know of in a single match? Was there ever a cup or league promotion determined by an own goal? I've had a quick look back. I, I, I can't see any. I've seen games where Wrexham have scored two own goals and two own goals have been scored for Wrexham. That seems to be the limit with us. Um... <sighs> And I, I can't think of Ungol's deciding a big game, but I'm sure if I searched long enough, I'd probably find something. There's a, there's definitely one player who scored a hat-trick of Ungol's, and that was in the Belgian league uh, for Eckeren. Well, he was playing for Eckeren. The goals were for Anderlecht, a big team in Belgium, um, and he scored three goals. 
And last year, there's a Liverpool women's centre-back who plays in New Zealand, and she scored three own goals against the USA. So, you know, multiple own goals are fun. Well, unless you're conceding them. I'm sure, I'm sure there have been uh, big matches decided by own goals, but for the life of me, I can't think. Here's a good own goal from Wrexham point of view. Um, the season we won the LDV Vans Trophy, 2005, we were playing at Lincoln and they had a strange rule in place. To, hang on, was it golden goal or silver goal there? Golden goal was like the first goal in the extra time. I'm sure it was golden goal. First goal in extra time wins. The game went to extra time and a Lincoln player scored an own goal. So that halted the game immediately and we were through. Which, that's quite an extreme example of an own goal deciding something. And we did go on to win the trophy. Uh, Angus the Sheepdog says, Morning, Mark. How, how mo Have more opposition players been sent off this season when playing against, against us than in previous seasons? It certainly feels like it has. It also feels like our discipline's a lot better. Well, you know me, I never need an excuse to use a graph. So this is every season that we've been in the National League. Wrexham players sent off are in red and op opposition players sent off are in green. Sorry, those of you who are listening, but I will talk through it. Basically, we've had no players sent off this season, a feat we've only achieved once in these 16 seasons, which is in the 2016-17 season, which is surprising because that was a bad season. Um, So that's impressive and certainly implies we've got better discipline than usual. As for more players being sent off against us, well, six players have been sent off against us. So in the 16 years in the National League, there have been four seasons where we've had more players sent off than us and another one where we had six sent off against us. So certainly it's it's above the average, but, I mean, there's also one season up there, the 2014-15 season, when we had nine players sent off against us. Of course, what I could have done, perhaps, is divided by number of matches because we played a hell of a lot of games in that season. We had a cup, FA Cup run and we got to the final of the FA Trophy. So we played, I think, my memory serves me right, 64 matches in that season. That's a lot of extra games and 18 cup games. So to be fair, there were more matches. But, yeah, more players were sent off against us. But we are making decent headway here. That's why six so far this season. Of course, the thing about red cards is it's a bit random, the pattern. We might get lots of spate of red cards against us and then suddenly none. So who knows? Let's see what it's like at the end of the season. But yeah, it does feel like quite a few are getting sent off. I'm struggling to think of controversial ones, though. I think I don't, I don't recall any ones where I thought, oh, he shouldn't have sent him off. I can think of a couple maybe somebody should have been sent off and wasn't. That's the way it goes, I suppose, isn't it? And Hypnotics Will Sudworth... What do you think of the first live streaming stats, including the approximate amount in pounds raised for Wrexham? Well, they're good, aren't they? I mean, that's a, that's a decent whack of money. It's fantastic. It really does show what Rob and Ryan were right as well in saying that we need to be doing this, you know, across the board because clubs clearly are missing out on an important form of revenue. We can see that in the figures that were just being released. So, yeah, fantastic. And, and you can see with the, the viewing numbers, there is clearly scope to expand further and further and further because we've made a brilliant foothold in an international market. It is astonishing. But clearly, there's still a lot more people we could tap into. So, yeah, very, very pleasing. But it does expose the National League again. Why did they turn down us when we offered to just stream until they got their platform set up 
and then we'd give all the money because it would mean, you know, looking at those figures, a nice little lump sum for every club in the National League. And isn't the National League board's job to look after their club's best interests? We were offering them free cash and the board turned it down. Yeah, talk me through that one, if you will. And Simon Cook, now, do season ticket holders count towards the attendance figure if they're there or not? Seemed to be a lot of space last night, but still a high attendance. That was Woking. Yes, I do. So I might explain it. Oh, I got to be honest, I didn't see a lot of spaces myself in the Woking game. Maybe just a few dotted around. And maybe it depends on where you were and what you could see in the ground. And then Eric Lombach. Is it true that Wrexham don't have a separate training pitch, so all their training is done on the race course? If that's true, is there a plan to build a training pitch on the ground so that the ground crew can keep the race course in better condition? Essentially, yeah, we don't have a permanent training ground. We did own what, Collier's Park, which is now a Welsh FA facility. It's just outside Wrexham, and what, five minutes by car from the race course. Five minutes by car from my house as well, actually. A walkie there, if you want. Um, and... It was built by the club. It was a club's training ground, but with our in our second near-death experience in the 21st century, the owners took possession of both our ground and the training ground and sold them on for their profit, not the club's. So we no longer own it. We don't always train on the race course. We do sometimes, but we don't always. Uh, we have to move around different places and then train in different places it's not ideal there are plans in the pipework to build a training center which would be fantastic it really really would because you're right, quite right it would help put the race course in better condition and of course the benefit of building something now when you've got the money to do it properly is that you will have proper state-of-the-art facilities and it'll be good we've already seen improvements at the gym of course in the club and there'll be a lot more improvement to come in that sense so yes it's on the agenda having a training ground built absolutely correct so cryptic construct cryptic construct asks last question what was the little red box with high windows at the end Wrexham kicked to in the second half at Aldershot all about well I I've been to Aldershot a number of times I must admit I've never actually asked it looks massively to me like a social club so you often get at football clubs especially at our level you know bigger clubs will just have cafes restaurants well cafes i see a couple of clubs do have cafes but restaurants and things like that and bars but often they're called social clubs and sometimes they're for members only i.e home fans sometimes not um and basically they will just be a club where you can go have a drink before the match they'll often have a big screen showing whatever's live on sky it's just a place where people can go and have a drink the, the the windows at the top of it would give a view of the pitch but they'd have to cover those up because it's illegal to be able to see a football pitch while consuming alcohol in britain yeah weird uh throwback to 1980s anti-hooligan legislation and uh, so you can you can get drunk out your mind in cricket um and throw stuff around and it's fine and in football, you can't drink anything in the ground, which I would argue leads to binge drinking because people are necking it as much as they can before the match and then at half time. And then there are blue little hatches at ground level, and I suspect what they're meant to be are serving hatches. So, you know, before the match or at half time, they'll have a kitchen in there if they're going to serve food in the social club because they often do that as well. Um, and they might also double that up as refreshments for fans. 
so they might be cooking pies or whatever in there and you can buy them in the social club to sit down at a table and have a pint or you can actually inside the ground go up to the serving hatch and buy a pie so that, that's what it looks like it'll probably turn out it's like one of Saddam Hussein's nuclear unstable uranium stores isn't it but that's what it looks like to me right okay chaps it's time for me to go my throat seems to have held out so i hope that was good i hope that answered enough questions i've got more of a backlog that i can address next week but in the meantime happy rexuming <laughs>